Well, Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and study it. I ask, Father, that it would be as a mirror for us. We're going to be talking a lot about character tonight. And I pray, Father, as we do that, just examine our hearts. Help us, Lord God, to, uh, to, to take this letter, even though it's written to someone who is a leader in the church. I ask, Father, that we, regardless of whether we're leaders or not, are going to be able to glean so much truth and challenge from this book of Titus and ask God that you would allow your spirit to teach us, illuminate our minds, open our eyes, open our hearts to receive it and plant these truths. Teach us incisively this evening, Lord, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Titus. Book of Titus was written by Paul sometime between that when he was released in 62 AD under house arrest in Rome, and when he was re-imprisoned around 66, maybe 67 AD. Um, the difference between those two imprisonments, one he was under house arrest in 60 to 62, the other he was in a dungeon in Rome, okay? Damp, dark, if you've ever seen, um, what is that new movie that's out? Paul, Apostle of Christ. Um, again, the good, good picture there, just as far as what it would have been like. And, um, we are not aware of stairs going up. When we visited Rome, we actually, they actually had built stairs down into what they personally believed was the dungeon in which both Peter and Paul, well, at least Peter, they say Paul, was kept. And there's a big hole in the top and you know, I, I believe that's the way they pictured it in the movie as well. Um, but so there was about four, maybe five years in which Paul was free, went on what I'm going to call his fourth missionary journey. One of those places that he went to evangelize was the island of Crete. Now, in his first missionary journey, which was around 40, um, 46, 47 A.D., he went to Cyprus with Barnabas. Barnabas was a native of Cyprus and just felt that that would be a good place to start. So they went to Cyprus, but Crete is further out into the Mediterranean. Crete, I believe, is the third largest island in the Mediterranean. Um, there's Corsica and Sardis and then Crete and then Cyprus. So Crete is a large island, and it appears that it had not been evangelized until after Paul's release, because as we find here in chapter 1, after evangelizing Crete, Paul leaves, but moves on, but he leaves Titus in the island to do what? Do you remember what he was left to do? Okay. All it says, two things, finish what we didn't and appoint elders. We're going to come to that. That's, that's a significant passage, actually, concerning church government. But um, we're going to come to it in just a moment. So we see that Titus has been endowed with authority. Paul leaves the mission to him as Paul moves on. And... It is probably written to Titus shortly after Paul leaves. And 
Our, our best guess is that it was probably delivered by Zenos the lawyer and Apollos in verse 13. Artemis and Tychicus seem to be those sent, Artemis or Tychicus seem to be w- one of them is going to relieve Titus of his responsibilities. And then Titus is going to be meeting up with Paul in Nicopolis. Now, if you have a map of Italy, go ahead and turn to it. Um, If you see to the right of Italy, on the west side of Greece, Macedonia, you have this place, Epirus. That is probably... um, where the city Nicopolis is. There's a couple of cities by that name, but that's probably the location of the one that he's referring to. Um, And so he's going to continue on his mission there with Titus. Um, You're probably familiar with Tychicus because he helped scribe some of Paul's letter, like Ephesus, uh, Ephesians. He was the, the writer for Paul. So, as we begin this letter, he starts off by saying, Paul, an apostle of, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Okay? A knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. Now, if we were to diagram this like a schemata, hope of eternal life and faith and knowledge. Now, I'm I'm showing you this because I want you to practice this as you're studying scripture. Learn the concept of schemata. Learn how to diagram passages. This is a very simple one. Some of them are very complicated, and Paul will have as many as 10 or more verses with no period. It's just one continuous thought, which back then in Greek, that was fine. However, you do that in high school or college in our day, and they're going to have the right, the teacher's going to put the words run on sentence, and you'll get uh, some, some points off. So you don't want to have run on sentences, but back then that was fine. And Paul has many of those, and it's many, like with his prayers, this is also very helpful, but anywhere, Draw some schemata. Show the cause and effect, maybe what they call uh, particularizations, in which he, he, he gives one thing and then gives a list that would follow from that one thing. Um, and so these types of things are, are important as you're studying Scripture. It helps you uh, see how the, the passages, verses, run-on sentences, if you will, hang together. Um, so... That, that would be a schemata here. So our hope of eternal, the faith and knowledge rest on this hope of eternal life, um, which God, who, is not, who does not lie, promised us. Now, he says to Titus, my true son in our common faith, which probably means that Paul wasn't just, didn't just adopt him. He came to Christ. Um, it's very probable that he led Titus to Christ. He didn't just find him and train him up to function uh, as a leader in the church, but he actually led him to Christ, my true son in the faith. And you might remember the book of Philemon. He calls Philemon my true son in the faith because he led, excuse me, 
Onesimus. Philemon was the slave owner, Onesimus was the slave. He led Onesimus to Christ, if you remember. And he calls him my true son in the faith. Now, I I want us to look here in verse 5, where he says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So this is not a new directive. He is just encouraging him. Let's get this work done because I need you to meet me in Nicopolis. Now, he doesn't give a time reference or, or a date, except when these two guys, one of these two guys, Artemis or Tychicus, actually get to him. Sorry about that blower out there that's making a lot of noise. Do your best to try and stay focused. And that's the signal when Artemis or Tychicus arrive that then he leaves and meets Paul in Nicopolis. I want us to see that he has these two tasks and they're significant for us if we're wanting to understand what Titus's function is, the authority that he carries with him, and the... What, what, what I'm just going to be basically call church government. Um, he is supposed to appoint leaders for the church. He specifically calls them elders here. Now, last week, we looked at the beginning of Philippians, and was, did the beginning of Philippians mention elders, mention saints? Do you remember what else it mentions? He's sending the writer overseers and deacons. Elders are left out. And the reason we discovered is because overseers are deacons, excuse me, overseers are elders. And when they function locally, those are pastors. Peter functioned as an apostle, but he called himself in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, a fellow elder, a co-elder with these elders that he's writing to. All right. So he is supposed to appoint elders. This word appoint basically means to point the finger and therefore to appoint. Um, It is thought by those who hold to a more congregational form of government that it comes from the word hand and therefore means a show of hands. Through a show of hands, appoint an elder. I'm going to disagree with that. Um, it actually means to point, it actually be meant the, a show of hands, but by the time Paul is writing, that word had changed and it means to point out, to point with the finger of the hand. The reason why I'm mentioning this is because this appointing is Titus's responsibility. And I do not believe that he goes around having the churches raise their hands and then he just lays hands on them. That's not appointing. Okay? So he has this authority whereby he sets leaders in, elders in. Now we saw that Paul and Barnabas carry this same 
responsibility, the same authority in Acts chapter 14. Remember on the first missionary journey, on their way back, they appointed, same Greek word, appointed elders in all the churches. And now he is asking Titus to do this. So I'm going to suggest to you that Titus is functioning apostolically. He's not just functioning as a pastor. He is functioning apostolically. He is functioning in every uh, element and with the same authority, level of authority that Paul has when Paul was ministering on his missionary journeys. And so I think that's significant. And so a, a, now when the elders are set in place, Again, it's not the congregation that sets elders in. It would be the established elders that set them, set them in. Okay. So that basically is the difference between a congregational led church and a leadership led church. Congregational would be something like Baptist or congregational. Um, a leadership oriented led church would be perhaps Episcopalian. I don't know a whole lot about their form of government, uh, Presbyterian. Um, and so that would be more representative leadership. Okay. Let's, before we get into this selection of elders, because we come across this phrase that I, I, I want us to point out in verse nine, where he says, he referring to the elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This concept of sound doctrine is literally healthy teaching. That's the literal translation, healthy teaching. It comes from the word didasco, uh, didactic, teaching. Um, and it is actually used four times in Paul's letters, but only in the pastoral letters. Four times. Twice in Titus, once in 1 Timothy, once in 2 Timothy. Also, the phrase sound instruction, which is um, very similar, sound instruction is used twice once in 1 Timothy, once in 2 Timothy. So between sound teaching, sound doctrine, these phrases are used six times in Paul's pastoral letters. Now I'm just going to put up here the pastoral letters so that you are aware of what they are. These are letters that were written after Paul's house arrest until he died. Titus and 1st and 2nd Timothy. So Titus, 1st Timothy. These were written um, between his imprisonments, okay? 2nd Timothy is when he is actually in what they call the maritime prison, a dungeon, okay? And when we get to 2nd Timothy, we'll see that in his last chapter. Skeptics like to point out that in Titus and First and Second Timothy, the word there are numerous phrases, one of which is this one, sound doctrine and sound words, is not used by Paul in any of his letters except these. 
And so they suggest that Paul did not write them, but someone else did. Now, can I just say to you that this is the common route when they analyze writings, letters, how, you know, word usage and phrase usage, they, skeptics will come up with conclusions like this. Paul didn't write this letter or this letter because the letter contains uncharacteristic words and phrases that Paul just didn't use or didn't use much. Well, I want to ask you, why would Paul probably use this, these phrases, sound doctrine or teaching or sound words or sound message in these three? He is speaking to people who function as leaders in the church. And I'm going to suggest not only in Titus, but Timothy as well functioned apostolically. Okay. Right. Right. Okay. So this is these are people Titus and Timothy that are sons in the faith and they have been personally discipled by Paul. And I'm going to suggest to you, and the reason why I'm getting into this, is Titus, the focus is this concept of sound doctrine. Okay? Sound doctrine. We see it in every single chapter. Not the phrase, but the significance of sound teaching in every single chapter. I want us to look at one place in which it's two places, actually. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Now, what is it that follows verse 2? Teach the older men to make sure they are Calvinist or Arminian in their theology, right? Make sure that they have a proper millennial view. Make sure they understand the intricacies of church government. Make sure they understand how to baptize. Any of those things? Look at verse 2 and in one word sum up what he's talking about. Holy living, godliness, character. Yes. So when he's talking about sound doctrine, the focus is not on what we today would consider those teachings that generally divide denominations. Now, I'm not going to say that sound teaching doesn't include that, but the focus of sound teaching or sound doctrine, the focus is character or character development. Okay? The reason why I'm pointing this out is because, at least in my upbringing, uh, sound doctrine, the focus of sound doctrine, had everything to do with what I just mentioned beforehand. It had everything to do with Calvinism or Arminianism. had to do with uh, your millennial view or church government. Various things that generally divide denominations. But that's not what his focus is here. I'm not saying it doesn't include that. Let me just suggest to you, when you get to heaven and you stand before the judgment seat of Christ 
and your action, you are you are weighed, so to speak, and rewarded accordingly. There are no punishments because Christ took care of that, right? You are rewarded accordingly. What are you going to be judged by? By what you believed, whether you were a Calvinist or Arminian, or by your actions and how you lived? Which one of those? It will be strictly on your behavior, how you lived. How did you walk this out? Okay? Now, let me suggest to you, though, that when we're talking about sound doctrine, when we're talking, which the focus is character, but I'm not going to exclude the concepts that would be contained in Calvinism and Arminianism and and how they understand it. Um, But let let me diagram it this way. The gospel is our foundation. If we miss the gospel, we miss it all. When you stand before God, the great white throne judgment, and you've missed this, you will not be, your good works will not be weighed because your sins will not be washed away. They will not be covered. They will still remain. When they open the book of life, you are not there because of your sins. And consequently, you'll experience what Revelation calls a second death, which is hell. So we just need to make sure that's the starting place. On the gospel, though, is this idea of of sound teaching. The focus of which then, I'm going to put on top of it, is character. So even though the most important thing that we can walk away with from the scriptures is not the specifics of what we believe apart from the gospel, apart from the this gospel, absolutely basic, no qualms there, but concerning sound doctrine or sound teaching, I'm saying the most important thing is character development. But I am going to say this, that how we live our life is integrally connected with what we believe. So I am not going to discount the issues that Arminianism and Calvinism discuss or those who hold a millennial view or those who hold to a rapture or just the second coming of Christ or uh, those are important issues but they are not those issues that we will be judged by now i grew up with that not being the case and i would say that's that would not be the case because the focus of all the sermons was theology some character development, but the focus was theology, right understanding. And they just simply believed that if you got right teaching, then character would follow. You know, most of Jesus's teaching did not fall into, it was the gospel and character. Who he was, what he was going to accomplish, concepts of forgiveness that are basic to the gospel. He did not get into heavily 
any issues that would divide Calvinism and Arminianism or millennial views or church government. It's not that he never touched on it, but that was not his focus. His focus would be like the book of Proverbs. How do we live in this kingdom of God? How do we access the power that is in that kingdom and how do we live by it? Okay, so that was Jesus' focus. And I think that we see that here in in the book of Titus. So I'm going to suggest to you, because Titus is functioning apostolically, he is wrapping things up, if you will, appointing elders. The focus is going to be on healthy teaching that manifests itself in how people live. All right. So let's look at the elders, the qualification for elders. We see the elders' qualifications come to us in two categories, both of which fall under this one word, blameless. Um, What does the NASB or King James have? Something that's a little bit more literal. It would be in verse 6. Yes, verse 6. An elder must be... That's the first word there. In verse 6. Above reproach. Okay. So... I want us to see that this concept of blameless, instead of there being a comma after it, a colon. Same thing when we get to verse 7, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. Paul is not repeating himself here, or above reproach, or above accusation, because he is he's trying to explain what he means by blameless in both of these categories. In the first category, do you see a thread that pulls these together? A common thread. Yes, the first listing of blameless and what follows. Family. He needs to be blameless in how he leads his family. Number one, husband of but one wife, and that was an issue back then. And then, number two, just with regard to his children, they have to be believers. This is for an elder. They have to be believers, and they cannot be open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. Um, So he needs to be above people pointing the finger at with regard to this, with regard to his family. He needs to set the pace, if you will. Now, the second category, what might that be? What common thread or theme do you see there? Okay, yeah, personal behavior. So in the first one, we have family. And the second one, we have behavior, how a person lives, specifically outside the home, or or it's, it's inside the home, but not as specific as the first category, family. That is how you treat your family. And they are, if you will, um, the evidence of your good character. 
If a man has bad character, it is going to show up in his children. It will show up in his wife. She will be uncared for. She will more than likely... Uh, she might be a godly woman and not allow her, the bad character of her husband to impact her. And she might do the best she can with her kids. And God's grace can certainly overcome this. But many men have found their way be to leadership in a church as an elder because they know business. And I'm just going to suggest to you, in our day, this is a common issue, a common problem that we face because as churches are larger now, generally, than they were back then, the focus is moving away now from character to an ability to attract people, an ability to administrate, an ability to do finances well. But if your church met in the home or in a, a small rented facility like Tyrannus Hall in, F, in Ephesus, there's not a whole lot of finances that you need to be concerned about, you need to keep track of. Um, there is some. But today, with the IRS and taxes and all of this, you've, you've got to, there, churches have a lot more expenses in our day than they did back then. So as a result, elders who are leading the church, consequently, are looked at for business prowess, strong leadership abilities, administrative, um, the, the, the Greek word is for leadership is helmsman, helmsmanship, um, navigator. As far as we NIV translates it, administration as one of the gifts. So I'm going to suggest to you that it is not that those aren't important, but the focus should never be on those things. Okay. You do need to have someone who knows finances. But there would be no problem if a deacon who's not qualified to be an elder sits in as someone who gives financial advice. And we have actually, I was a part of a church on the leadership team in which that's what they did. One particular um, person was very good with finances, actually taught it in a local school. He was a Christian. He was not an elder. And so, but he was asked to sit in and just give some feedback and counsel with regard to finances. But the leading of the church is much more than finances. Now, I want us to take just a very quick moment and turn to First Pete, excuse me, First Timothy chapter five. And in First Timothy chapter five, verse seventeen, it says, "The elders who direct the affairs of the church well." are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So not all elders did the preaching and teaching. Some of them did more of the administrative work. Okay? And so you have those who are uh, teaching elders and those who are more ruling elders. All right. So the purpose, though, of an elder is to care for the church. 
care for the needs of the church. And so his home needs to be in order and his life needs to be in order. Okay? He needs to have as his foundation in the diagram I just drew up here but erased, he needs to have sound doctrine. And in verse 9, it speaks of this so that he can encourage people in the church, but what about those who oppose the truth? He needs to be able to refute them. Now, this Greek word that's translated refute, how is it translated in in other versions? Do you see that in verse 9? He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as he's been taught so that he can, number one, encourage others by sound doctrine, and number two, refute those who oppose it. That word, refute. Okay. Um, This word for refute, give me one second. Oh, here we go. It means to convict, rebuke, convince, or yes, refute. It is... Found twice in Titus, verse 13 here, and in chapter chapter 2, verse 15, where it's translated rebuke. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. So it can also be translated correct. um, Or to bring correction so as to convince them. It can sometimes come very firmly or just very persuasively, depending on the context. In Revelation, it's used, chapter 3, verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke. Those whom I love, remember the letter to Laodicea. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So that is a very firm context in which it's used. So the purpose, though, is is not to slam them, it's not to humiliate them, it is to bring correction, because we're going to find out in Second Timothy that the man of God, the servant of God, needs to be able to bring that correction with the hope that this person's heart will change and that they will actually be led to repentance. Okay? So... This uh, sound doctrine is important, but let's always, always, always remember that its main purpose is not so that we turn out Calvinist or Arminian. The main purpose is that we reflect Jesus Christ. As he gets into the latter part of the chapter, uh, Paul, Paul doesn't mince his words. He is really firm here. The Cretans have been well-known, much as the Corinthians for sexual immorality, the Cretans' um, sin had gotten into their culture and had undermined this concept of telling the truth, had undermined self-control, which, by the way, you're going to find as a particular focus in chapter 2, training the older women, younger women, younger men, self, this concept of self-control that we're going to look at in a moment. And so he says, he actually quotes and says, one of their own prophets has said, 
Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. They're violent, they have no self-control, and they lie. Wow, that's that sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? But it apparently was commonly known. And so he says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. Now, I'm going to suggest that them are the Cretans and not so much the teachers. The circumcision group that he talks about in verse 10, these are a group that he says they must be silenced. They claim to know God, but their lifestyle is it, it demonstrates that they deny the power of God. They say they know God. They got the, the knowledge. They would even say they have sound doctrine, but their lifestyle doesn't reflect it. Character doesn't flow from their supposed sound doctrine. And the reason is because they've missed the gospel. And when you miss the gospel, of course you're going to miss sound doctrine. And missing sound doctrine, you're going to miss out on the grace of God that teaches us to say no. We're going to look at in chapter 2 in a moment. All right? So this the circumcision group is just one example of false teachers who oppose the gospel. Uh, we have many people who deny sound doctrine in our world today. Uh, we have people from different religions. Um, it would be very common. And you might even hear this, I won't mention names, from some people on TV that have very large followings that they will they will say silly things such as, um, we all basically are heading towards the same goal or we all are similar in what we're trying to teach. And what they mean to say is we both teach love, but they, Islam is radically, emphasis on radical, um, is radically different than Christianity. It completely denies the authority of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and does not teach that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. That, he, that um, Judas was a good guy. That uh, Bar- Barab- Barabbas was the one who took Jesus' place on the cross, or a lookalike of Jesus, took his place on the cross, and God rescued his son. They do consider Jesus a prophet, but not the ultimate prophet, because, of course, Muhammad is. No, Mm-mm. just a prophet, just a man. Um, then, of course, we have those who believe that he was more than a man, that he was Michael the Archangel, who volunteered to take on human flesh and become Jesus, but that he was not God. This is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. So when you undermine who Jesus is and what he accomplished, because only God, come in the flesh, could accomplish salvation on the cross for us and, and, and grant us eternal life by his resurrection. Okay? Only God, come in the flesh, can do that. And I've talked about it in the past, so I won't get into it now. Let's go ahead on to chapter 2. We come across this, uh, this verb, didasco, or to teach, numerous times. He, he specifically refers to different groups. 
You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. So what is in accord with sound doctrine? Character. And that's his focus here. So his first group is older men. The second group is older women. The older women are then to instruct the younger women. And Titus is, in, Titus is told to instruct the young men. So we have four categories. Older men, older women, younger women, young men. Okay? Now, I, I'm not going to get into the specifics of the what he is to teach them, but they all have to do with character. They all have to do um, with how Christ can be seen in us. And most of these are general type of words, like live in a way that people will respect you. Okay? Um, be temperate, self-controlled, and Let me just suggest that he understands these groups and what they go through, what they deal with. And so he he doesn't just say to the older men, the older women, the younger women, and the younger men, tell teach them to be this, that, or the other. But... Older men understand this concept of respect and how do we live in a way that's respectable. They've been in the business world enough to understand when you speak to someone or deal with someone in a way that is unkind, people will generally not respect you. If you lie, people will generally not respect you and will not want to follow you. And so they understand these things and so he tells them, live in a way that's worthy of respect. Um, he talks to the uh, older women to be reverent in the way they live and not to be slanderers. Now, can I just not pull any punches here? When it comes to men and women, there is a tendency for both of them to tend to gossip or slander but even more so with women, okay? Especially in that culture in which not many women were out in the marketplace working, there was, if there was free time, they would end up being busybodies. We'll see that in in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So there was this tendency to gossip. Women generally are more relational than men, Generally, I'm saying, they tend to be more intuitive in their relationships and see things that a lot of guys may not see. Um, In the home, I know my wife is absolutely indispensable for me. And I, I relish having her as a partner in ministry because she is able to see things that I will not. And so many times, not always of course, but many times, I'm going to lay some things before her and see what she she thinks. Because she's going to be able to have an angle on it that I am not going to be able to see. Now I'm learning, and so over the 35 years that I've been married to her, I've been able to learn how to assess 
people a whole lot better and read between the lines, if you will. Um, but I'll be honest, I've learned that from her. There is that tendency, though, within women to say things and to share information that they shouldn't be sharing. And so he specifically tells them, be careful of this. Be careful of this. For the younger women, the idea, the, the focus there is husband, children, self-control. And before I go any further, let me... Um, the older women, is, they are to teach what is good. And then verse 4, then they can train the younger women. That is not the word teach. That is, it's NIV translates it, uh, train. What are some other versions say about that? Encourage? Okay, other translations? It literally means to help bring someone to their senses or to not rely on desires and emotions. Teach them to think clearly. Uh, we actually encounter this word twice when I preach through First Peter. It's translated to be sober or to think soberly. Think clearly, not cloudedly, clouded by desires or emotions and, and the such. And so the older women need to teach the younger women, hey, you know what? I know you're very upset by this, but if you make this decision based on your emotions, you're going to regret it. I know you're upset with your husband, but understand his perspective. No, 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 no. He's just wrong. Well, hang on. Just listen. Try and step into his shoes. See it from his angle. And so everybody wrestles with this, but I'm going to suggest to you younger women generally will wrestle with this more. And older women can more because they have not been trained. Okay, all of us, though, if we're not careful, we can be led astray by our emotions and our desires. We can be, but we need to think clearly. The second thing I want us to point out, and I am going to probably step on some toes with this, though maybe not anyone here, but those who might be listening uh, online. And it is that not right after it says to be self-controlled and pure, it says NIV says to be busy at home. What do other versions read? To be busy at home. What does yours say? Workers at home. Workers at home? Okay. That would be a little bit more literal translation. It's one word. Um, and if you were to look it up in a Greek dictionary lexicon, it would say homeworkers. That doesn't mean that they're good at school and they stay on top of their homework load. That means that they are working at home. Make sure the women are working at home. Okay. Now, I just spent the weekend working at my home. <laughs> wow, was I exhausted. Uh, I, I looked like a, a wet cat come in because I was on the ladder washing my house, and it just downpoured. And the only reason why I got down is because I couldn't see anymore because the rain, because I had to look up a little bit, and it kept going into my eyes. So I was, I was working at home, but... The women are generally caring for the children, caring for their husbands, and they are caring for their home. That doesn't mean that 
they're supposed to, or that my wife should have been washing the house this past weekend. I'm not suggesting this. But they are homemakers. That does not mean, though, that they can't find employment outside the home. But I'm going to suggest to you, you never find a command similar to this given to men. You will find it in 1 Timothy 5 that we're going to see. You will find it here and other places in which women, Proverbs 31, women will be taking care of the home much more than men. So personally, I have a problem when we see on TV shows and the man says, you know what, let me stay home and I'll take care of the kids and I'll clean the house and you go get full-time employment and you support the family. I believe that that's contrary to the word of God. And the more we allow that, in our culture and think that it's totally okay. And I'm not suggesting that there are some women out there who could make more money than men. But the directive in scripture is not that way. Okay? Very true. Yes. Could it be that he's referencing the home specifically because in that culture women didn't have outside employment? And so he was noticing how lazy they were and being busybodies and so Right. I would suggest, though, that he would not have used this word. He would have said, um, don't be a busybody. Don't be lazy. Um, Work hard, either at home or outside the home, but work hard. But he uses this word, be busy at home. Work hard at home. So he's very specific here rather than giving a general don't be lazy or don't be a busybody because he does use these terms and as we look in second uh, Timothy chapter 3 that was an issue and he calls the ladies busybodies and he he rebukes these people who worm their ways into these homes and really challenges them so um Then to the young men, he simply says, teach them to be self-controlled. And then he goes back to Titus and he says, Titus, in everything, set an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness. We see this word soundness again, sound faith, sound um, speech, sound teaching, healthy, okay? that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Titus is representative of the gospel, the leaders in the church, generally apostles. I want us to see that in verse 5, we see the word so that or in order to, whatever your version says. It's a cause and effect. Um... I I want the young women, younger women to reflect Christ so that no one will malign the word of God. Verse 8, Titus, I want you to teach in such a way so that those who oppose you may be ashamed. And then with regard to slaves, in verse 10, he says um, they are to respect their masters so that in every way 
they may make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So I'm going to suggest to you that one of the main reasons for properly teaching, training, and focusing on character when we're teaching sound doctrine is so that our lives will reflect godly character, which he, he in essence is saying, make the gospel bulletproof like this. Make the church bulletproof like this. Live in a way that truly reflects the character of Christ, that makes the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now, do you remember back in, in Acts chapter 2, where they were sharing, uh, they had all things in common, they were sharing with one another, they were practicing hospitality, meeting in homes, fellowshipping, rejoicing, uh, there were miracles. The church was really unified in this concept of teaching and fellowship and praying communion and community. And the result was that people were added to the church daily. It impacted. The way they lived impacted the community. When the Grecian widows were no longer neglected and their needs were being met, even priests whose job it was to take care of the poor, even priests became obedient to the faith, it says. Okay, so the way we live, the way we abide in the word and abide in the truth and live it out is going to impact people and it is going to give the gospel of Jesus Christ a good reputation. It will make it attractive and people will want to investigate and find out what is this gospel that you're talking about? I mean, I'm used to just going to church and it's all like a show and you go to a meeting and then you're done and, you know, you kind of paid homage to your conscience. And that to me, that's what church, that's what Christianity is. But what you're saying and the way you live is so totally different. Tell me about this Jesus. Because the Jesus they've heard about is very different than the Jesus you speak about and live for. And so it makes the gospel attractive. And so my challenge to us, if we don't get anything else out of what we're learning tonight, then get this. The gospel, rooted in the gospel, is this concept of sound teaching. And in this concept of sound teaching, the main focus is how we live for Jesus. And if we are living for Jesus, it will win the world. And if we want to see global revival in our world, in our city expanding throughout this world, then we need to make the gospel attract. We need to live in such a way and speak in such a way. People, you, we, we can live good lives, but if we never tell people about Jesus, they'll never come to Jesus, right? So we need to be speaking and we need to be living in a way that makes the gospel attractive so that people will be added to the church daily, Okay. And, and there is a, a lot on, on God pouring out his grace and a lot that we are doing that is going to eventually bring about global revival. But we are partnering with God in this. And I say that with humility because, wow, we partnering with God, really? But that is what God calls. We are co-laborers with God. Wow. God is going to win this world by us opening our mouths and living our lives so that the gospel is attracting people, all right?
That is the bait. If you're going fishing, use the right bait. All right? It is right teaching and it is right living. Okay? So, (coughs) he goes on to talk about, in verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God. (coughs) And I don't want us to see verse 11 to in some way suggest that salvation is happening to all men. This is, this is not a verse that someone can point to and say, that, well, see, Scripture teaches universal salvation. That's not what this verse is saying. Number one, to all men can be just as easily translated for all men, that it has appeared for all men. How, was God, how did God's grace appear? In Jesus. In how he lived, what he died for, and what he rose for. Okay, so that is the grace of God. And later it talks about that grace in, in chapter three, verse seven, so that having been justified by his grace, we have become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Okay, so that grace manifests itself in us by us being justified. And we weren't justified by something that we did. It's not by works or works of the law. It is by grace through faith. So we have been justified. We have been declared righteous and we have actually been and and our sins washed away and actually have received the imputed righteousness of God himself, of Jesus Christ. So this grace has appeared, but then it says in verse 12, it teaches us this grace that appeared in Jesus teaches us. Now, throughout this letter to Titus, Paul has been using the Greek verb didasko a lot. Okay? And he does not use that word here. He actually uses a word, a verb, in which its root means child. And it's translated to train or at times to discipline. Let me find my place here so I can speak to that more thoroughly. Um, it is the Greek word paiduo. Paiduo. Um, and it basically can be translated teach um, or train, but it is, it's something that is instilled in us. Teaching generally is with words. This Greek verb, not necessarily. Okay, it's through actions, it's through the Holy Spirit's prompting and training us and what God is doing in us as a result of us being rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, having the Spirit in us, being renewed by the Holy Spirit, chapter 3 talks about, who has been generously poured out on us, and that is what is training us, and we need to have ears to the Spirit. We need to be able to be listening to the Spirit, pliable to the Spirit, and when the Spirit brings correction, that we don't harden our hearts. And that we are humble and teachable and constantly listening. God, what are you saying to me? What are you teaching me today? I blew it here. 
What would you have me do? Show me, teach me. And it's not going to just be with words. It's going to just be through communion of his spirit. He might lead you to scriptures. He might lead someone to speak into your life specific to that issue. He's, he's going to do a number of things instilling in you, not just words, instilling in you just like you would a child. You don't just train a child by spanking them. You don't just train a child, I want you to do this and I don't want you to do that. You don't just train them by spanking them, but you train them also by showing them. You train them by giving them an example, having them do it and watching them do it. There is so much more that's in this word, paiduo, to train, uh, than just the word didasco, to teach. So that's important. This is what the grace of God does. And may I also add, though that may not be found in this verb, grace is also God's empowerment. So God empowers us to say no or to reject ungodliness. Can I just, before we move on to chapter 3.1 thing out, in verse 13 it says, while we wait for the blessed hope, and by the way, what is the blessed hope? Jesus' return, okay. But how does it read? It says, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the King James translates it, the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it is not its purpose, the King James, to suggest that the great God is the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ is Jesus, as if it's God and Jesus that will appearing at the end. Number one, does God ever appear at the end of the age. He does not. There is no verse in scripture that tells me that God, the Father, will appear at the end of the age. It is always Jesus. God will not appear. That is God the Father. And so we need to see that this, that these two descriptive concepts of the great God and our Savior are Jesus Christ. Okay? Number two... There is only one definite article, okay? Only one definite article, and that definite article, instead of two, there's not one definite article for the great God and another definite article for the, for, um, the Savior of us, which is generally translated our Savior. That's how, if it were two people, that's generally how it would be written in Greek. Two definite articles. Um, just one moment, if you could turn to, um, let's say first Peter, I think this is, uh, no, I'm sorry. Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one. <coughs> And in verse 1, it says, To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. One definite article. Later in verse 2, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There is a definite article, not trans, definite meaning the, before God and before our, our Lord Jesus. So there's two definite articles. Verse 2 is referring to God the Father and Jesus our Lord. Two persons in the Trinity. Verse 1, 
God and Savior refers to Jesus Christ. If you were to skip over to chapter 3, and in verse 18, it says, chapter 3, 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One definite article, Lord and Savior, therefore refers to Jesus Christ and only him. If you were to go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, and it says, And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, one definite article. Go back to ch- verse 2. Knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Two definite articles. So again, Titus 2. The appearing of our great God and Savior, both of those refer to Jesus Christ. Okay, but let's move on to chapter three. Any questions at this point? Sorry, can you repeat those scriptures? I'm going to write them down because that has been a thing in my mind because the way it said it in English, it seems mm-hmm. like it could be two different, and that's really good to know. That yeah, so right. it would be First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter, chapter two, excuse me, Second Peter, chapter one, verses one, verse two. Was that verse 12, guys? I, 11. Okay. 2 okay. Peter, I'm going to turn to it real quickly here. Uh, one eleven. But in, in verse 1, there's one definite article. In verse 2, there's two definite articles, so they're two separate persons. Verse 11, it's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is one definite article. And so both Lord and Savior refer to Jesus Christ. And then chapter 3, verse 18, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, one definite article. So Lord and Savior both refer to Jesus Christ. In Titus 2.11, excuse me, Titus 2.13, great God and Savior both refer to Jesus Christ because there's one definite article. Okay. So did you get all those verses? Titus one thirteen is the one we're looking at. Yeah. Excuse me. Two thirteen. Thank you. Oh my. Okay. All right. Any questions or comments with regard to chapter two before I move on to chapter three? Did you have a good time? You did. Awesome. Glad to have you. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. All right, chapter three. Um, I'm only going to take a few minutes, uh, you know, 10 to 15 minutes on this. I'll try to keep it as close to 10 as I can. Paul, he gets into the gospel. Remember, the, the theme here has been sound teaching or healthy teaching. That is rooted, though, in the gospel. He starts off in verse 3 about character. And he's been talking about how character overflows from healthy teaching. But it truly is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our salvation. And so that's what verses 4 through 8 is, is all about. The gospel of Jesus Christ. So he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he has generously poured out upon us. Okay. He saved us 
the washing of rebirth. That word rebirth can also be translated regeneration. The washing of regeneration, being born again. Being born again washes us. How? What is it talking about there? Um, okay, a new creation. In, I think sanctification is a springboard from this. The washing of regeneration. Washing of re- regeneration happens. Um, and again, initial sanctification, because sanctification is in three stages. It happens at our conversion. It happens throughout our lifetime, and then we'll be completely sanctified in heaven. But it is sanctification, initial sanctification, therefore, is this cleansing. So as long as we understand that element of sanctification. Um, you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that we were washed, we were sanctified. That's the, that's the type of sanctification he is. We, we, all of us were like this, and he lists several sexual sins, but now we have been washed, now we have been sanctified and cleansed. So um, as long as we understand that element of sanctification, I'm going to say yes, because that is the washing away of our sins. So rebirth, this concept of a new creation, is rooted in this idea of forgiveness of sins. We often associate rebirth with being born again and coming alive from death to life. But at the heart of that, the reason why we move from death to life is because something happens to our sin. Okay? The result, uh, well... What happens then as we are born again is the fact that our sins are washed away, they are dealt with, they are removed as far as the east is from the west, Psalms tells us. And so, consequently, having been washed of my sins, I am reborn at that very same moment. Because it's the sin, it's sin is like the anchor or the weight that ties me to death. And when that anchor is removed, I can now be regenerated, but the sin has got to be broken. That's why he says in verse uh, 3 there that we were enslaved. We were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We were a slave to our sin. We were actually dead in those sins. But when those sins were washed away, we were simultaneously born again. Okay? So I want us to make sure we see this connection between the washing away of our sin and regeneration. Many theologians picture forgiveness of sins happening as a result of our faith and that our faith is the result of being born again. That would be a Calvinist perspective. And I need to suggest to you this phrase teaches that that is not the case. The washing of regeneration happens, my I receive forgiveness of sins because I have believed and repented. And so being born again flows out of that, does not precede that. It flows out of that. My will is corrupt, granted, but that doesn't mean it's corrupt beyond the ability to believe. Again, Calvinists would say, you cannot believe because you are depraved, because you are dead in your sins, and your will is is in bondage, meaning, therefore, you cannot believe apart from God making you alive. 
So I'm going to suggest that that, that is wrong thinking. Um, many scriptures that could be seen to um, to stand out against that. But we believe, and our sins are washed away, and simultaneously we are born again. Washing of regeneration. Okay? And renewal by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit then comes in us once we believe. Not only does he regenerate us and make us alive by washing our sins away, but he renews us and he makes us this new man, new woman. We're new creatures in Christ. The old is past and the new has come. We are different. And then, of course, comes in this second stage of sanctification that lasts throughout our lifetime here. Okay? Um, I, I want us to... Ah, there's... Hmm, okay. <laughs> this phrase in verse 8, trustworthy saying, is another one of those phrases that is used in the pastoral epistles and is unique to them. Paul doesn't use it in other uh, letters. And again, well, therefore, I guess Paul didn't write them. Well, no, it's because of who he's writing to, all right? And and maybe not just who he's writing to, and then therefore the nature of the letter, but it's it's also several years after his letters to the Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians. And so every writer, every author matures. Now I'm mentioning this to you because if you were to go to a, a, a non-Christian, or maybe even some Christian universities, God forbid, but non-Christian universities, they're going to teach you, well, yeah, they say Paul wrote these 13 letters, but some of them he clearly didn't. And let me tell you why. Uh, don't believe that for a second. Okay. Um, but this phrase, trustworthy saying, is what he has just said. Not what follows, but what he has just said. The fact that he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. We are now born again, made alive, new creatures in Christ, and he has been poured out upon us so that having been justified by grace, we now are heirs. Okay? And again, if we were to diagram this, this would be a good one to diagram. I just did not plan on doing that. But you can see that because we're justified by his grace, we are now heirs. And because we are heirs, we have this hope of eternal life. Okay? We are part of God's family. We have uh, everything that has been given to Jesus as his inheritance from sec for securing salvation for us. He is called our, in Hebrews, our elder brother. We have access to that as co-heirs with Christ. And for this reason, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Okay, <coughs> excuse me. So he then concludes his letter by challenging him to avoid certain things. Verse nine, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. There are some things that we can get into and split hairs about concerning the Bible 
some of which could actually end up being heretical, but others of which are just not important. And we want to make them important. And when you start digging into the concepts of describing hell and how can hell be literal fire when people are cast into hell, it says that they're also cast into outer darkness and fire has light. So he's obviously saying that hell, uh, the, the fires of hell are metaphorical. Number one, I don't necessarily agree with that. In our physical experience, fire has light. But the idea of this eternal fire, obviously, is that it does not have light, but it burns. So all I'm, all we can draw from that is not that it's a metaphorical fire, but rather that it is a different type of fire than we have ever experienced. Number one, it is eternal. Have you ever seen a fire that doesn't go out? Okay, no, I, I've not. Once it consumes its fuel, it goes out. So this type of fire, but we, if we want to get into the discussion about hell, we have to be careful because people start there and then they start talking about not just that the fire of hell is metaphorical, but hell itself is a metaphor and that there is no hell. And then before you know it, you're down this track of eternal, uh, of universal salvation and everyone's going to heaven. And, or, or the concepts of purgatory, you know, you're just in this hell for a little while and then God rescues you and you get to go to heaven forever. That is not a teaching of scripture. So some of these discussions can be fruitless. They're birthed from pride. They are, they're, they're of no value. Others, you know, like, does, does faith precede re- regeneration or regeneration precede faith? That discussion can bear fruit. But again, um, we have to be very careful. We want to understand our Calvinist brothers, number one, um, because they do place value on faith. Personally, I don't think they place enough, but they do place value on faith. And it is a discussion that can bear fruit, but if we're not careful, we start, and this is the way with any theological discussion, that it can be helpful, it can turn, it can go south and turn sour, and it can simply defend your pride, and it turns into an argument rather than a discovery of truth. There are those who do not hold to sound teaching because they do not hold to the gospel. And he uses this word in, look there with me in verse 10, warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. This divisive person, this is, it literally is um, heretical man. That's how it's literally translated. Um, but the word Our word heretic or heretical comes from this Greek word and it doesn't necessarily literally mean what we say heretic means. It does mean someone who is divisive. And then later we got this word, this Greek word um, heretikos came to mean a heretic and you banished him. Okay. So, but literally, 
in the Greek language, it originally meant just someone who is divisive, someone who um, he, he was he was divisive by his teachings. Okay, so you can you could actually have someone who is this phrase heretical man could apply to and was a Christian. They were just full of pride. They didn't necessarily have a firm grasp on some teachings. Um, and, and I have heard some men, I'm sure that they're saved, but they just have some really weird teachings. Origin. I, I, I don't know if Origin was truly saved. I'm not going to discuss that, but he had some pretty strange teachings. He was highly influenced by, by Aristotelian philosophy he worked it into his Christianity. Um, he, he taught what appears to be what's commonly called transmigration of the soul. And just some weird stuff. Um, but he did have some good teaching, though. And solid teaching, on the other hand. So, um, regardless, it is certainly possible for someone to be born again, but have bad teachings... And these types of people, when they start affecting the way you live, he says, look, warn this person. He's bringing division. Warn him. And then give him a second chance. But after that, after that second warning, you're done. Okay? So if he does not change course after that first rebuke, then rebuke him a second time and he's, and you're done with him. Okay? The word heretic in our day is never applied to someone who is um, a Christian. So I, I'm just saying we want to be careful with this, and that's why they don't translate it heretic. But his teaching, um, he certainly could be. All right. But the idea of bad teaching, unhealthy teaching, is that it breeds division. Uh, some of them were based on Jewish myths, and you know that there's there's Jewish myths in it. And I'm trying to remember some of them. Um, what, what what was the one? Forgive me, I'm just shooting from the hip here. Um, about Adam's what? Like Adam apparently had a wife before Eve, and uh, you know just some really weird Jewish myths that were out there. And the reason there's even a name given to her. Does anyone happen to? I'm sorry? Lilith. Lilith. There we go. Lilith. And it's just Jewish myths. And, and so he is saying those types of things, they're not in the Bible. The, they have no value. So don't even teach them. Rebuke people who start teaching them. Because they can lead down the wrong path. Okay. Um, this, he concludes this, this divisive person by, person by saying have nothing to do with him, you may be sure that such a man, after he's warned a second time and he doesn't change, he is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Um, so that's a, that's a good translation of the Greek word, warped. It's twisted. It is misshapen, um, turned aside, perverted. So, bottom line, we want to make sure that when 
that we are not just believing the gospel, but that we are living the gospel. That elders especially, they need to be leading the way and they need to be representatives of Christ himself on this earth, showing the flock a good example of what it means to be a man of God, a follower of Jesus Christ. He needs to be able to be teachable. And and so for all of us, let me go back to chapter 2. We take on the character of Christ so that no one will malign the word of God. We take on the character of Christ so that um, no one will have anything bad to say about Christ or followers of Christ or the church. We take on the character of Christ in every way so that peop- so that we will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Okay? So very important. Again, if we want to see global revival, we have to speak the gospel and we have to live the gospel. People need to see the genuine, authentic article, Jesus in us. He has transformed us. He's continuing to trans- He's continuing to transform me, and I do blow it. And sometimes my children have to pull me aside, or my wife, or close friends, and say, "Mike." And God has to still deal with me, all right. And that's going to be the natural course for us because we are in this process of sanctification. But the more we radiate Christ, Jesus says that. Um, that people might see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. So this is our goal, to shine Jesus and speak Jesus. Everything comes back. The character comes back to sound teaching and sound teaching rooted in the gospel and the gospel is based on this grace of God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. All right? And so it's, it's, this is all about Jesus. All of our life, everything that we say and do is all about him. Amen. Let me close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for the, the teaching of this book, Titus. Lord, would you help us as we are weighing our own lives here? And the Father, if we have allowed certain teachings into our life and they are undermining our ability to live for you, then I am asking God that you would eradicate that and that you would show us and you would help us, Father, as we seek to live wholeheartedly for you and that this grace of God would train us, would train us. So, Lord, I I pray that you would do that for all of us, God. That grace of God in us, train us, God, please, to shine Jesus. In Christ's name we pray.